This is The Guardian. Today, stories from a city under siege. First of all, a warning. Today's episode contains some scenes and descriptions that you might find distressing. If you look at a map of Ukraine, the city of Mariupol appears as just a tiny dot on the country's southeastern coast. But its importance as a port city from which goods flow in and out of the country and its geographical position next to Crimea, which Russia controls, has made it a key target in Putin's war on Ukraine. Over the past four weeks, the Russian army has been trying to bomb this city of almost half a million people into submission. It's not clear how many people have died. Many of their bodies lie in the streets or are buried in the rubble of the buildings where they were trying to find shelter. Somehow, for now at least, the Ukrainian army is holding out. It's 3,000 soldiers against the 14,000 Russian fighters who are encircling Mariupol. Some people have managed to escape. At least 100,000 remain in a city that's being starved of fresh food and water. With no phone or internet connections, largely cut off from the world. We have no drinking water. It's about 10 to 12 degrees centigrade in our flats. We have no gas. We are freezing. It is so scary. We can't live like this. Those who've survived are only now beginning to talk about what's happened in the past month. I went to take people from basements, but they didn't want to leave because they were so used to sitting there. They were scared of what awaited them outside the concrete walls. They are being destroyed every night. I had to use force to get them out. I lied to them, whatever I could think of. I said, there's hot food waiting for you, electricity, mobile phone signal. I lied and I'm not ashamed. I believe that the people I got out are in less danger than they were inside the city. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the siege of Mariupol. Isabel Koshu, you're a reporter for The Guardian and you're based in Kyiv, but over the past few weeks, you've been doing your best to speak to people who've managed to escape Mariupol. 
What was the city like before this war began? Mariupol was a major city in southeastern Ukraine. It was a big port city known for its sunshine. It's on the Azov Sea. It's surrounded by seaside resort towns. Mariupol itself is quite a pretty city. Lots of its architecture is Soviet, but in the centre, it's tree-lined. And around 450,000 people lived there before February 2022. Mariupol came under the control of Russia's proxy forces in spring 2014. We've been hearing about clashes in the city of Mariupol between Ukrainian forces and pro-Russian activists. Ukraine's interior minister now says more than 20 people have been killed. And eventually Ukraine won back control over the city. Since Russia declared war on February the 24th, it's made Mariupol one of its key targets. Why is that? Why is it so important to Putin's army? It's the key city for Russia because they control Mariupol, they control that entire strip in between Crimea, which they annexed in 2014, and Ukraine's eastern territories, which they have effectively had control over since 2014. In between those two territories, it's the main city. So if the Russian army was to get control of Mariupol, they'd be able to join up all the areas they'd held before and create a direct route into Russia itself. In the first few days of the war, the attention, at least internationally, was on what was happening in Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital, wondering whether it was going to fall. What was happening at that time in Mariupol? So from the people that I've spoken to, they said the first few days they heard shelling and fighting, but it was mostly on the sort of outskirts of the city, but it was still incredibly frightening. It's hard to say exactly how far it is away, but it sounds as though Russian forces are getting now much closer to the city. And after the first three or four days, people had essentially bought everything out of the shops and were starting to live basically in basements or sleep in their corridors. And the city was coming under siege. And then towards the end of February... A lot of the city had lost its internet connection. There'd been a Russian strike. As a reporter trying to cover this from outside the city, how difficult was it then to find out what was actually going on inside? It was and is incredibly difficult. One of the first things that I noticed since the war started was evacuees asking me what was happening in the rest of the country because they hadn't had any phone connection. From what people have said and what the Ukrainian authorities believe, Russia has targeted telecommunications infrastructure and used sort of jamming devices. So I think the last time people inside Mariupol had any real mobile signal was the 2nd of March. So they don't know what's going on within the city. They don't know what's happening with their relatives who live nearby. They certainly don't know what's happening outside of Mariupol. This is the centre of a city of half a million people. And as you can probably make out, it's more or less deserted. The electricity is gone. The internet's gone. The Russians are coming. Mariupol awaits its fate.
In the last few days, some people have been able to escape the city and they've been talking to you about the conditions that they've had to live through in the past few weeks. There's a woman called Athena who you've been speaking to and she works as a translator for foreign journalists in Mariupol. Hello? Can you tell me a bit about her? Yes, sure. So Athena was working as a translator for Greek journalists who were in Mariupol not just to cover Russia's military build-up along Ukraine's borders, but also the city's Greek roots. Mariupol was first settled by the Greeks in the Byzantine era, and there's still quite a sizable ethnic Greek community there. And when the war started, she continued working with the journalists for a few days. She said she spent a lot of the time hiding in the Greek consulate with them. The Greek consulate offered Athena and her mother the chance to evacuate. But Athena's mother is 83 years old. She's not very mobile. She'd lived there her whole life. And she's just said, I'm not leaving my home. I don't want to leave. She said to me that I couldn't imagine leaving my mum. I couldn't imagine going and wondering what was happening to her. And so they just decided to stay. After the Greek journalists were evacuated, she went to the supermarket to do some shopping. And she saw that all the shelves were already emptied. She said, I just bought some packets of butter, crisps, and some Snickers, because there was nothing else. We didn't believe that anything would happen, so we didn't stock up enough. So was there a sense of almost not quite realising the severity of the situation? Absolutely. She said that they didn't believe anything was going to really happen, and I think most Ukrainians felt that way. I think psychologically, people, when they're faced with threats which just seem so unimaginable, they want to believe that it's not going to happen. And it seems sensible not to be hysterical and not to think the worst. But I think that's been the case with a lot of Ukrainians who have either come under occupation or are living in areas where there's really heavy fighting now. Mariupol's siege is now a citywide atrocity. Russia continues to dangle the possibility of a humanitarian corridor to its trapped residents while it continues to drop bombs and missiles on them night and day. So they stayed in the city, but... All their access to food was dwindling. How were Athena and her mum surviving? So the way that they described it to me is that her and all of their neighbours basically gathered their food together every day on the streets together. She said her and her mother really, really tried to just eat tiny bits every day in order to make their stocks last. She said that one of the things that she really regretted was not stocking up properly. And then they were there on 8th of March, which is a big holiday in Ukraine. It's International Women's Day. And normally 8th of March is a time where women are given flowers and chocolates and your phone is just full of messages of admiration and all this sort of stuff. 
and her and her mother to sort of treat themselves. This is what they described was a sort of luxury meal. They made buckwheat on the stove outside and had it with three slices of sausage and a can of low alcoholic drink. <laughs> She said it was like a little joke. We hadn't completely lost our spirit at that point because our apartment building was still standing. It just shows you how people are trying their best to just carry on with some sense of normality and some sense of humour to get through it. This was certainly the case with some of the people I spoke to who decided to sleep in their apartments instead of sleeping in basements because they just decided that, well, we might as well try and live slightly better and die rather than die uncomfortable in a basement. Athena said that you have to understand that when they're bombing 24 hours a day, you can't sit all day on the concrete floors. Gosh. And I mean, at that stage... It was clear that the Russian army was targeting the whole city indiscriminately, people's homes, public buildings, including a maternity hospital on the 9th of March. A heavily pregnant woman, perhaps on the verge of labour, getting stretched away from what used to be the Women and Children's Hospital in Mariupol. Children comforted by soldiers who are barely adults. A girl dazed. What did Afina and her mum decide to do? So I think it was about six days after they lost phone connection that they decided to go and see how Afina's brother was. But he lives in another part of the city. But Afina's mum is so elderly that it took her around two hours just to make it halfway. Is that because they would normally be relying on public transport? Exactly. So buses certainly aren't running and there's not any petrol. Most people's cars have been destroyed. So people are forced to walk on foot to another area of the city and they don't know what's awaiting them. They don't know whether that area of the city is still going to be standing. They don't know whether there's fighting going on in that area because they haven't got any way of communicating with people there. At this point, they didn't know, and I'm not sure if they do know, whether their brother is actually still alive because he's still in the city. So people even within the city couldn't communicate with each other. What did they tell you about what it was like to live through that? They said it was just awful because you just have no idea what is happening. You're hearing things exploding. You have no way of telling your family that you're safe. So you just feel completely isolated and alone, particularly people who are become so terrified because of the constant shelling. And and in Mariupol, it has really, really been constant and 24 hours a day, artillery fire along with airstrikes, that people are too terrified to leave their own houses or basements. So they just kind of get into this very difficult psychological state where they almost don't want to know what's going on. They just want to stay put because they're safe just staying completely still. That's how they feel anyway. So they started walking to her brother's house. After about two hours, they just had to give up because it was just too much for her mum to keep going. What did they decide to do then? 
So they decided to stop at a volunteer centre that they just happened upon. And she runs into a friend. And this friend has children and their apartment block has been completely destroyed. And so Athena offers her friend and her friend's family her apartment. So they all go back with the mother to their apartment instead of continuing on to see her brother. Wow. It's quite amazing, isn't it, really? The sort of kindness that you end up showing to people when you're all in that awful situation together. What was the Ukrainian government doing at that point to try and get people out of the city and try and get them to safety? So this has been a huge point of contention amongst those who've been evacuated. First of all, the Ukrainian government tried to organise humanitarian corridors within that first week, but they failed. Russia didn't stick to its part of the agreement and shelling continued along those routes that people were meant to be using to safely evacuate. Approximately 200 kilometres north in the town of Orokiv, the buses meant to rescue the people of Mariupol had stopped. Russian army positions are only 10 kilometres from here. Drivers, some with family in Mariupol, told us they'd heard reports of fighting on the route. So the following week, they once again came to an agreement and this agreement was by and large stuck to. But the issue is that People from Mariupol are expected to go to a neighbouring town. It's a town under Russian control, but Ukrainian authorities have made an agreement with Russia to pick people up on buses and take them to Ukrainian-controlled Zaporizhia, which is slightly north of there. And this neighbouring town is around 86 kilometres from Mariupol. Most people don't have cars, so some people are trying to make the journey on foot. But even if that particular corridor is relatively safe, it's still a huge risk to walk through the city and then out of the city on foot to this neighbouring town in order to get the bus into Ukrainian-controlled territories. Hello. One man that I spoke to called Dimitro is a man in his 40s, originally from Mariupol, He has a family and he lived under the siege for just over two weeks before he managed to evacuate. I was talking to him about the organisation of the humanitarian corridors and he said, no, 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 stop, stop, you don't understand. Okay. There's no organisational coordination in the city. People are sitting in basements and simply don't know what's going on. People don't know about the fact that these humanitarian corridors exist. He said that the only reason that he found out about it was through word of mouth. One neighbour told another neighbour told another neighbour and the news got to him and that's when they decided to leave. They just decided, okay, we have no idea what this will involve, whether it's safe. They don't even know whether it really exists, but they just decided, okay, we're going to get in our car and we're going to try. But he said that most people don't even know about these corridors. We've heard in the last few days that a lot of people have been trying to leave. 
I got out of the city's central district with bombings and destruction. We lost our house, so now we're leaving with our children. We're still in shock and fearful. According to President Zelensky, about 100,000 people are still in the city. Other than trying to get to that village outside Mariupol, where you can get a Ukrainian-run bus, what other options are there for people who are trying to get out? The second option, which has become controversial and has upset many Ukrainians who are watching this from the outside, is that Mariupol residents can travel to smaller towns and villages outside of Mariupol, which are Russian-controlled, and then from there they can move essentially to Russia proper. And many of the people who have evacuated are weighing up this option because if they stay in these unrecognised areas, which are currently under Russian occupation, they don't know what kind of future that will hold. Here, refugees have made it to territory long held by pro-Russian rebels. Ukraine's authorities claim many more have been forcibly moved into Russia itself. Yeah, it seems very surreal that they're being evacuated to a country that's attacking them. At that stage, moving from the second to the third week of March, what was life like for the people who were stuck in the city? Basically, every single person that I speak to describes Mariupol as like some sort of hell. Bodies line basements in Mariupol's only hospital left standing. Women take shelter on a floor. Above ground, every simple act, charging phones, a life and death choice. You see buildings which are on fire. You can see most of the buildings are burnt out. There's debris everywhere. There are also dead bodies lying about in the street and people can't pick them up. Oh, my God. These are the innocent victims of this war. Some are laid out on the street, others under blankets. But they all deserved better than this. And people are still living in some of these burnt out and damaged buildings because they don't have anywhere else to go. And then people, every day, they sort of come out for a few hours at a time in order to cook on the streets. This is because they don't have any gas or any electricity in their homes. So they rely on collecting firewood and cooking on makeshift stoves. And from what everyone's described, it's a very sort of communal atmosphere. People are trying to help each other out. People are trying to share things. But I also think that people are just completely terrified and um, I don't want to use the word damaged, but but essentially that. In that house which was bombed, we left my 86-year-old mother. We just weren't able to carry her out. Another thing that people have really talked about a lot is the cold, especially last week. I think it was around minus 10 in Mariupol at one point and probably a lot colder at night. And of course, they've got no heating. So people are wearing several coats all the time. I saw a picture of one man who had two blankets wrapped around his legs, like sort of tied like a sarong, just walking around because... After a while, once you get that cold, it's impossible to get warm again. What's also such a shocking detail is that there just hasn't been any drinking water, right? 
Мы видели, насколько были разрушены весь Мариуполь. Мы видели, насколько был разрушен As he said that he believes that the famine had already begun when he was leaving. He said there's maybe two, three more days left before people's supplies end. That is almost unbelievable. And I wonder, for President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine, to look on that as a leader, to see that happening in the country that you're in charge of, what's he had to say about it? Well, he keeps saying we're going to fight for Mariupol, we're with you, Mariupol, him and other Ukrainian officials. To do this to a peaceful city, what the occupiers did to it is a terror that will be remembered for centuries to come. But almost everybody that I've spoken to who survived Mariupol, essentially, and managed to leave, have said that they felt completely abandoned by Ukraine and that they were provided with no help, no support. The Ukrainian army is still in the city fighting Russian forces, but they're surrounded on all sides. So almost half of the city is definitely occupied, as far as I understand. So they're really in a pocket. And the idea that Ukraine can reach those people now is almost impossible. Coming up, what does Putin have planned for Mariupol? Isabel, we've probably all seen the pictures of the theatre in Mariupol that was bombed on March the 16th. A theatre sheltering civilians. Ukraine says as many as 1,200 were there when Russia dropped a bomb. This was inside merely days ago, trapped families with no way out, hiding in the building, even branding their desperation to the sky. These words say, children, a human plea to spare them. Instead, mass slaughter. From the outside, it feels like that was a clear symbol that the Russian army is now not just bombing indiscriminately, but actually deliberately targeting the public. Absolutely. There's been multiple reports of them executing civilians for completely unclear reasons, so essentially extrajudicial killings. But the bombing of the drama theatre in Mariupol was certainly the biggest attack directly on civilians that they've done so far. I spoke to one of the MPs for Mariupol called Serhi Taruta, and he told me that he thought the majority had died. Other reports from the authorities in the city have said that most survived. It's still very unclear. 
And the mayor of Mariupol has said that we are unable to conduct a full-scale rescue operation on the site because the bombing just hasn't stopped. Wow, and we're so many days later and we still don't know what's happened. After several weeks of being completely bombarded, a lot of people had expected that Mariupol would have fallen to the Russians, but it hadn't and it still hasn't completely. How have the Ukrainian forces been able to carry on defending the city? I think for the Ukrainian authorities, fighting to the last inch for Mariupol is seen as a worthwhile endeavour, simply because it will mean that Russia will have complete control over Ukraine's southeastern strip and can use that to go further. They are fighting street to street in Mariupol now, in the heart of the city. Russian forces have advanced, but in these Ukrainian military videos from the cockpits of tanks and armoured vehicles, the Ukrainians are trying to push them back, as they did eight years ago. I think the message overall in this war is no surrender, because at that point, if you surrender in one place, would you not also surrender in another? I think it's just the sort of mentality of we have to fight until we can't fight anymore because then at least we know we fought. And at the beginning of this week, Russia gave Ukraine an ultimatum. They said, we'll give you until 5am on Monday for everyone, all the Ukrainians in Mariupol to lay down their weapons and leave or face the consequences. What actually happened? The deadline passed and the mayor of Mariupol absolutely refused to surrender. The Ukrainian forces continued to fight for the city and continue now. The city is basically completely destroyed and it's really unclear how many people have died. Figures range from 2,500 people to 20,000 people. And essentially, it seems, unfortunately, like many more people may die and it's unclear what further tactics Russia is prepared to use in order to win control over the city. The Russian Defence Ministry has released videos of what it says are airstrikes on Ukrainian military targets. The video of unspecified locations follows the announcement that it had used a hypersonic missile in combat for the first time, saying it had destroyed an underground weapons warehouse. You mentioned that Dimitro and his family were able to get out of the city. What about Athena and her mum? Do you know what's happened to them? With Athena, she and her mother made it to Poland just yesterday. They spent, I think, 35 hours on a train. Okay. And finally, Isabel, as we look at the immediate future for this city, what's likely to happen? So Evgeny Malkanetka and Mislav Chernov were two journalists who have essentially gone way above and beyond to cover everything that's happened in Mariupol since the start. And they've only just left the city. They've been there the entire time and they just published their account of what it was like for them as journalists covering it. And they said that the reason why they left is because the Ukrainian forces essentially told them that if they didn't leave, Russia was planning to capture them and then forced them to say that everything that they had documented in the city was a lie. Very reminiscent of how 
Russia claimed that lots of the images and events that happened in Syria were fake. So that's why eventually they did agree to leave. But the fact that Russia is now targeting certain individuals in the areas that it occupies indicates that if they do eventually occupy the city, there could be more executions possibly that we saw under Russian-backed forces in eastern Ukraine And they could take all kinds of measures against people that they see as pro-Ukrainian or people that they think could stir up trouble underneath their rule. It's very scary. It's quite clear, especially from Mariupol, that Russia hasn't come here to try and win the hearts and minds of the Ukrainian people. Because if they were trying to do that, then they would try and treat the civilians under their control as best as they possibly could. But what we've seen is that when they either enter and control an area or are trying to take over an area, they target infrastructure such as water, electricity and gas and mobile phone signal in order to isolate and, in a sense, in an attempt to break the civilian population and break any potential resistance. It's like breaking people's spirits, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's been less than a month since the invasion started, but it takes a huge toll on people. Isabel, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Isabel Koshu. You can keep up with her reporting from Ukraine at theguardian.com. And if you want to better understand what's been going on in British politics this week... There's a Guardian podcast I'd recommend. It's called Politics Weekly UK. It's hosted by John Harris, whose work I'm sure you'll have read or watched. And this week, he's going to be breaking down the Chancellor's spring statement and explaining what it means to you. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef with help from Cleetzia Sala and sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. Our executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mythely Rao. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.